A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Once upon a time, there was a prince. Some people thought he was handsome. Others remembered his poor choices in fancy dress. And then he fell in love with a beautiful woman from California. We know the rest of the story. They got married. Anonymous briefings started appearing in the newspapers saying that she was difficult and demanding. And before long, the couple had left the royal family and moved to L.A., leaving accusations hanging in the air that the British press and the royal household had been racist. The story of Harry and Meghan has been the biggest challenge to the future of the monarchy since the death of Princess Diana. It had lots of threads to it race, celebrity, relationships within the royal family. But one of the really strong threads is money. And in that, this royal saga was far from unusual. Because when you start to dig into the finances of the royal family, as we have, one of the things you realise is how often money and conflict go together. I'm Basha Cummings, and welcome to The Slow Newscast. This week, we're telling the story of royal money, how much they've got, where they get it from, and why it's at the root of so many of their troubles. Our reporter, Alexi Mostras, has been going through the royal accounts for us, and I'm looking forward to talking to him in a moment. But first, a message from our newsroom. Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher in an app, online, in our daily Sensemaker email and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news and we'd love for you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download our app and take the free trial. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial and help make the news. It's been a big year for the Sussexes. Married in May, the couple announced last month that they're expecting their first child. But if that wasn't enough to keep them busy, they're moving house as well. Maybe we'll be, we'll be back here in 20 years' time and she's turned out to be a fantastic member of the royal family. But there are lots of worrying signs, not least you know, doing up their house, two and a half million pounds cost to the taxpayer. That's, that's the behaviour of a Kardashian, not somebody who married into the royal family. So they've got to be careful. So this week I'm joined by my colleague, Alexi Mostras. Hello, Alexi. 
Hi, Basha. Hello, welcome. So that's what a short honeymoon sounds like. A year after they got married, Harry and Meghan were starting to really come under fire from the press. And not for the first time, it was Piers Morgan, the former newspaper editor and now host of Good Morning Britain, who's extremely opinionated on Twitter, some of you might have seen. And it was really him who was stirring the pot. So Alexi, how did things go so sour so quickly? So as you've been saying, the important thing about this story is that it starts with money. So at this point, we're a year after that showbiz wedding in Windsor in 2018, the sunshine, the famous sermon from the American bishop. One another, because love is of God and those who love are born of God and know God. Those who do not love do not know God. Why? For God is love. The carriage ride. And here's Piers Morgan now saying Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are behaving like the Kardashians. In 2019, the trouble they'd run into was over the cost of doing up the house where they were planning to live, a place called Frogmore Cottage. It's near Windsor Castle. It's more of a house than a cottage, really. It's got four bedrooms. And there'd been an announcement before the wedding that it was going to be done up so they could move in. To begin with... The cost of doing it up was put at about one and a half million pounds. But as you can hear Piers Morgan complaining, that had gone up to nearly two and a half million a year later. There's quite a lot to this story, isn't there? Because, OK, I'm not officially a Kardashians expert, but I don't personally picture Harry and Meghan living in a four bedroom house. So it's a great illustration of of lots of things, I think. Uh, It certainly tells you something about the double standards of the British press. The papers, they want a monarchy, or nearly all of them do, and all the pomp that goes with it. But they've got a history going back decades of kicking up a fuss whenever the royal family spends money doing up one of their homes. It happened over Clarence House, uh, where Prince Charles, the heir to the throne, lives. It happened over Buckingham Palace, and you're right, Frogmore Cottage is not a palace, far from it, but they worked up a huge resentment over the money that had been spent there too. And it's also a symbol of the lack of transparency over the way the royals spend their money. The public found out that the bill for Frogmore Cottage had gone up by a million quid because the royal household released its annual accounts. We'll come back to those accounts later, but the important thing to know is that they don't cover everything and the level of scrutiny that's applied to them is really quite sketchy. So I think this all tells you something about a collision between the expectations we put on the monarchy and the values we expect them to live by on the one hand, and the expectations and values in the world at large, particularly the world that Meghan Markle lived in before she married into the royal family, which was the world of celebrity. I think for me, that's key. It's that shift from celebrity to royalty, because I suppose for Meghan, we know that this Frogmore Cottage moment was basically a crash course in what it means to be royal, particularly when it comes to money. Well, we know that money is important to the royal household. They push hard to get what they think is a reasonable settlement from the taxpayer. But increasingly for them, I think money is also an issue of freedom and control. So we know, because we've talked to someone who was involved at the time, that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex were deeply upset by the public row over Frogmore Cottage. And it was a particular shock to Meghan. 
Megan, she's self-made, she's independent, she'd starred in a popular TV series and suddenly all that was denied to her. She had no money of her own and no independence and everything she spent had to be signed off by a royal bureaucracy. So it's not difficult to see how frustrating that could be. The other important aspect of this story is that the Sussexes felt unsupported by the wider royal family. There were briefings against them and they felt that they had been hung out to dry in front of the British press. And that in itself was partly a question of money as well. She's going to end up like a mini royal Kim Kardashian. Okay, so now we need to get into where the royals get their money from. It's something that I don't know a huge amount about and I know that it's shrouded in a lot of secrecy, can we say? Yeah, secrecy. (laughs) And there are really three main pots, so tell me about them. Sure. So there's the sovereign grant, which is basically the money that they get from you and me, from the taxpayer. And then there are the two duchies, which are effectively commercial landlords controlled by the royal family. And they own properties and land, and they make profits which the royal family can spend. There's the Duchy of Lancaster, which is controlled by the Queen, and the Duchy of Cornwall is actually bigger than the Duchy of Lancaster, and that's controlled by Prince Charles, her son and heir. This might be a slightly dim question, but I only know what a duchy is because of seeing it on biscuits and honey and things in Waitrose. Actually, do I want to admit that I know what it is from Waitrose? I don't know. <laughs> but what is a duchy? What is a duchy? Exactly. What is a duchy? A duchy is a medieval term for a piece of property or a territory controlled by a duke or a duchess. And there are only two of them in Britain now, uh, the Duchy of Lancaster and Cornwall. And it's the Duchy of Cornwall we're interested in right now because it's the profits from there which Prince Charles uses to fund his two sons, William and Harry. And that arrangement created two problems, really. It means that when Prince Charles becomes king and William takes over the running of the Duchy of Cornwall, he's going to control the purse strings of his brother Harry. And and since we know, because Harry has said it himself, that he and his brother were drifting apart by this point, then you can imagine that that's an uncomfortable prospect for him. And the second problem was that the Sussexes, Harry and Meghan, didn't think they were getting enough money. They'd been pushing for more staff, partly so they could run their own media operation. And so when they felt unsupported by the Royal Press Office as the Frogmore Cottage outrage story ran and ran, that was also a money problem. They thought they were being nickel and dimed and the press was trampling all over them as a result. So that's interesting. So we've got money playing a role in two ways in the Harry and Meghan saga, both because they didn't think that there was enough of it to look after them and protect them as public figures, and because the bureaucratic control over how they could spend it was a shock to somebody like Meghan, who was used to doing what she wanted with her own money. We'll come back to Harry and Meghan to try and make sense of how all of that plays out. But before we do that, I think it's worth spending a bit of time with the man who feels like the sort of patient zero of this set of problems. Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, is embroiled in an increasingly acrimonious dispute with US prosecutors who are investigating the crimes of the late Jeffrey Epstein. She described dancing with you and you profusely sweating and that she went on to have... There's a a slight problem with with the sweating because I have a peculiar medical condition which is that I don't sweat 
um, or I didn't sweat at the time. So, Alexei, Prince Andrew would be hilarious if it wasn't all quite so sinister. You would have had to have been hiding in a cave last year to miss that extraordinary hour-long interview that he gave to the BBC about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, the billionaire who was a convicted sex offender. But explain why money comes into the Andrew story. Well, questions of how much Andrew was earning and spending have hung over him for decades. When he was trade envoy in the noughties, he ran up huge expenses travelling across the globe first class, and he earned the nickname Air Miles Andy because of his penchant for using helicopters and planes on even very short trips. His relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, the sex offender who committed suicide last year, was interwoven with the same sort of questions over cash, not least because Epstein paid £15,000 to Prince Andrew's ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson, to help her settle her debts. And more recently, Prince Andrew's charity was found to have breached the law after it paid £355,000 to his long-standing private secretary for her work as a trustee. I think the key thing to take away from Andrew is that he is symbolic of how much obscurity there is in terms of how the royals run their finances. And that's obviously something that you've been digging into and investigating for us at Tortoise. So tell me about what your investigation revealed. So what we wanted to do with this investigation uh, was was to look at what happened to royal finances since the financial crisis. So since 2008, when most of us in Britain had seen our incomes either fall uh, or stagnate. And what we found with the royals uh, was the opposite. Their annual earnings, at least from the public sources we know about, had increased from £63 million a year in 2008-09 to £142 million today. So their income has doubled during a period that we here in the UK call austerity, which is where we've seen governments slash budgets to councils, to education, to the NHS, and we've seen the fallout of that but in that time, they've doubled their income. That's, that's correct. So where do they get that income? Well, we mentioned three sources before, but actually, in terms of public funds, you're talking about four main sources. So they've got the Duchy of Cornwall, which we already know funds Prince Charles, and that gave Charles £21 million last year. The Duchy of Lancaster, which, again, we've mentioned before, generated... £21 million, the same figure, just a coincidence for the Queen last year. Then you've got ticket sales to Windsor Castle and other fees for putting on events in Buckingham Palace. That stream of income brought the Queen £18 million last year. But most significantly is the fourth source of income. And that's possibly the most controversial one as well, because that is the sovereign grant. And this is effectively taxpayer money going each year to support the Queen in her official duties. And what we found was that thanks almost entirely to reforms brought in by George Osborne in 2011, when he was Chancellor, that amount, the sovereign grant amount, has ballooned from around £31 a year in 2012-13 to about £86 a year today. Okay, I suppose the next question is obvious then, which is, 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why? Is that because they're spending more, they need more money? The royals are spending more, that's true. But the size of their grant is not calculated on that basis. The Treasury don't ask Buckingham Palace, how much money do you need, and then pay it. Instead, the way the annual grant is calculated is done in a completely different and some would say bizarre way. OK, so how do they, how do they calculate it? Well, what happens is that the grant is linked, the size of the grant is linked to the amount of profits generated by something called the Crown Estate. Now, prior to 2011, when Osborne brought in all his reforms, the royals were funded through a variety of different sources, and it was all pretty complicated. What Osborne said was, let's make this whole process much more simple. Let's just have one grant going to the royal family each year. We want a system which provides the Queen with dignity, which allows her and her family to do their official job as, uh, in her case, our head of state, but to do it in a way that is accountable, that is transparent, uh, and that uh, delivers value for money for the taxpayer. And to determine the size of the grant, he linked it to the Crown Estate, which is this £14 billion commercial company that owns huge amounts of property across Britain. So it owns the whole of Regent Street, for example. And it also owns the rights to all the seabeds, or most of them, uh, along the coast. So if you go for a swim on a British beach, you're likely to be swimming on Crown Estate property. So anyway, the, the Crown Estate used to be the monarch's private land. But way back in the 18th century, that all changed. George III surrendered control of the Crown Estate's revenue to the Treasury, and since that point, all the Crown Estate's yearly profits have gone to the Treasury. And they still go to the Treasury today. So in spite of its name, in spite of it being called the Crown Estate, effectively, this is a public asset generating money for the public pot. But if the Crown Estate no longer provides money to the Crown, why is it relevant to how much money the monarchy receives every year? Well, it's a good question. A senior civil servant who was involved in the negotiations at the time told us that it was bonkers to link the two, that the Crown Estate hadn't been linked to the monarchy for almost 300 years. And he said, you might, might as well link the annual grant to the number of thunderstorms in the London area. 
So this official has kind of set out to us an alternative explanation for for why Osborne wanted to link the annual grant to the Crown Estate's profits. And he said that Osborne wanted to kick the football of royal money out of politics. So there wasn't an argument every year about whether the government was giving the royals too much money or too little money, uh, especially at a time of austerity when he was making a lot of other cuts. We, we can have a debate about the, um, the mechanism, um, but uh, as I say, the effect uh, is pretty much uh, to continue through this parliament with the sort of sums of money that they've been getting through the last parliament. Uh, and that's, of course, in cash terms, which means it's a, around a 9% real uh, cut and comes on top of a over 50% real cut over the last uh, 20 years. So what this civil servant said was that Osborne, in complicity with the palace, linked the grant to the Crown Estate in order to trick the British public into thinking that the Queen was effectively funding herself through her own land holdings. Whereas actually, as we've seen, the Crown Estate even though it's all still legally owned by the Queen, it's effectively a public asset. So Osborne changed the system of funding and at the same time he was introducing austerity politics. The annual grant given to the Queen was now calculated in a different way to than it was before, but that doesn't yet explain why the money has gone up by so much. Yeah, so the deal was that the sovereign grant, the amount going each year to the monarchy would be the same as 15% of the Crown Estate's yearly profits. So what would happen is that the Treasury would collect in all the profits from the Crown Estate that they were entitled to and then separately pay the Queen a grant equivalent of 15%. And what's happened over the last 10 years, as we know, is the value of commercial property has soared. And since the Crown Estate owns a huge amount of commercial property, so too has its profits. And that, in turn, has meant that the money going to the Queen has kept going up and up and up. All of this is fascinating, but there's another key dimension to royal finances that you discovered in your reporting, Alexia, and it's it's a really significant one and relates to those beaches that you talked about swimming on earlier. Tell me more about that. So, Basha, yes, do you remember I said that the Crown Estate owns the rights to most of the British coastline? Well, this is going to produce a massive windfall for the royal family in the next two decades if everything stays the same. And that is because every time an offshore wind farm is built off the coast of Britain, it's built on Crown Estate-controlled land. And so the Crown Estate gets money from the offshore wind farm operators. Currently, there are only a few offshore wind funds off the coast of Britain. So the Crown Estate doesn't make that much money yet from offshore wind. But the government wants to really ramp up production of offshore wind farms. And as that happens, the Crown Estate's profits from offshore wind will rise. And so will the monarchy's grant. So we asked Jonathan Marshall, who heads the analysis at a climate change think tank, to crunch all these figures. And he calculated that the total revenue for the Crown Estate from these wind farms over the next 15 years could be about £2.5 billion. Right. I mean, the top line here is clearly they're getting richer and they're going to get much, much richer. So how much of that is going to go to the royal family, of that £2.5 
It depends on when and where these wind farms are built and whether the current funding model stays the same. But assuming everything stays the same, the royals will be or could be roughly £500 million richer as a result, just as a result of offshore wind. So this will all benefit the royal family, not because they've invested in it or borne any of the risk of building the farms, but because their income is linked to the Crown Estate, which owns the land off the coast of the UK. Yes, Basha, that's exactly right. Wintertime was ushered in for Britain by 70 mile an hour gale. Roaring winds swept the country from coast to coast. So we've looked at where the royal family gets its money from and how phenomenally well they've done from the new way that the sovereign grant has been calculated, thanks to George Osborne, since 2012. And we've looked at a bit at Prince Andrew, who embodies somehow that sense of frustration that the money's not quite enough and that the royals don't have as much cash as the people that they hang out with. But let's come back to Harry and Meghan. We were talking earlier about Frogmore Cottage and how that came to crystallise a set of problems to do with the media and the way that they were treated by the rest of the royal family and the fact that at the root of all of that was money. But of course, an amazing amount of stuff has happened since then. Harry and Meghan are no longer working royals. They're no longer his and her royal highness. Royal history being written tonight. A statement from the Queen announcing a far more serious move than simply stepping down as senior royals. And they're living in LA, but their leaving was like a bomb going off inside the monarchy. It's astonishing. It's momentous. It has no precedent in modern times. The golden couple have decided they're quitting. And from what we've talked about, it seems that money was at the heart of that. Well, yeah, I think you're right. And the great thing about Harry and Meghan's departure is that we know a lot about it because they told us a lot about it as it was all unravelling. The important point, though, to remember about where they are now is that it's not where they wanted to end up. They wanted what they called financial independence within the royal family, and they've ended up with financial independence outside it. And it's amazing, isn't it, given everything that's happened since, that it was only in January this year that this, this all kicked off. So you'll remember first we had a statement by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex which caught Buckingham Palace completely by surprise. It said they wanted, quotes, a progressive new role within the monarchy, end quotes, and they were going to split their time between the UK and North America. And right at the heart of that statement was this question of financial independence. Yeah. Let me read a short section of the statement from January. And as you've been saying, this is a statement of where they wanted to get to. It's not how things have actually worked out. But they said, in 2020, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have made the choice to transition into a new working model as they step back as senior members of the royal family and no longer receive funding through the sovereign grant, they will become members of the royal family with financial independence, which is something that they look forward to. But the thing about that statement is that it doesn't quite tell the whole story. Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of a symbol of how complicated the royal finances are, because Harry and Meghan got their money through a variety of different sources. So in their statement, they mentioned the sovereign grant, but that gave them only about 5% of their income. The rest of the income came from the Duchy of Cornwall through Prince Charles. So in effect, what they were proposing 
is that they get financial independence within the royal family, including the right to go and earn their own money in return for a 5% pay cut. So I suppose it wasn't surprising when the Queen said no to that. And the other thing we have to ask ourselves, and this, I think, points to the kinds of problems the royal family might have over money in the future, is why Harry and Meghan wanted financial independence. So it may have been partly so they could earn more. We know they didn't think they were getting a big enough slice of the pie from Prince Charles, and that was a problem. They definitely wanted to go and make money commercially, They seemed to be planning to launch some brands. And there was that video of Prince Harry cozying up to the boss of Disney at the Lion King premiere, touting for work for Meghan. But that whole territory of being half royal and half commercial is a nightmare for the royal family. The reputational damage Harry and Meghan could do with a couple of badly judged deals or endorsements is pretty incalculable. But Harry and Meghan's real issue with taxpayer money, the sovereign grant, and this is something they come back to again and again in that statement in January, is that it comes with strings attached. It means you have to account for what you spend. And more than that, it means you have to do things that you don't want to do. In Harry and Meghan's case, the thing they really didn't want to do was to deal with the media, with the royal correspondence. They made it clear that they didn't trust them. They thought they were disreputable. And it was a red line for them to keep on being part of what's called the royal rota. But my British friend said to me, I'm sure he's great, but you shouldn't do it because the British tabloids will destroy your life. And that, I think, explains why they said they wouldn't take money from the sovereign grant. That's taxpayers' money. There's no way round it. So it comes with obligations. If they could say they were only taking money from the Duchy of Cornwall, which, as we've been saying, claims to be a private estate, then maybe they could get off that hook. And the fascinating thing here for the royal family is that it makes money a problem in new ways, ways that could be tricky for generations of royals to come. So yes, there's the old problem of being wealthy but not cash rich. So some of their money is tied up and they can't get at it. But then there's this new issue of independence. That might be something that younger royals find hard to stomach. I think I think that's right. And I think the truth is that we may never know what the mix of Harry and Meghan's motives were for getting out of the core royal family. So it seems like they wanted to earn more money and they definitely wanted more independence. But which of these was the real driver? Who knows? But whether it's money for its own sake or money is a problem because it comes with strings attached, you're still talking about money. And Bashar, I can't help thinking that this is a problem the royal family are going to keep running into. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I think there's a really good chance that you'll enjoy all the other stuff that we do at Tortoise. I know I say it every week, but there are a load of articles that you can read on our app and online. And because we're an open newsroom, that means that there are a whole load of editorial meetings that you can join in on from basically wherever you are in the world. So you can shape our journalism and the stories that we tell. All you need to do is get our app and you can get access to all of that. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for our 30 day free trial. And of course, just as importantly, if you like this podcast, share it or give us a review or tell somebody about it. Thank you. And we'll see you next week.
I also really want to make clear that I don't habitually shop at Waitrose. Hopefully that doesn't lose us listeners devoted to Waitrose. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com. Listener.